Welcome back to the Malpix podcast. Today our guest is Yurek Kazira. We have a second new co-host today. Say hello to Deval. Hey. Also here today are Boya. Hello. Eric. Hello. And I'm Hannah. Yurek is the founder and CEO of Nanovery, a DNA robot-based diagnostics company for early disease detection. Prior to this, he studied computer science with artificial intelligence at Nottingham University and earned his PhD in DNA nanotechnology and DNA computing at Newcastle University. Other than Nanovery, he has also been involved in a DNA barcoding spin-out. Yurek, hi. Hi. Hi, Anna. Delighted to be here. So first I'd like to ask you something I ask all our guests. How did you find out about and get into molecular programming? Mm, yeah, that's an interesting uh, question for me. I guess it was the uh, PhD work that I did, uh, but actually uh, maybe a bit of embarrassing story from, the, from before that. Um, I actually, when I was, uh, my undergrad was in uh, computing science and artificial intelligence. And one summer I was uh, on a walk with my girlfriend and now ex-girlfriend. And I don't know how it happened, but essentially we had a, a conversation that uh, one of us said, oh, you know, there's uh, actually, you know, very little we, we talk about. Um Obviously, it wasn't true, but uh, I kind of, um, coming back to uni on my final year, I was thinking, okay, uh, if I take uh, all the biology-related modules I can do, uh, my girlfriend was studying biotechnology at the time, so I started taking modules like non-startant computation, biologically-inspired computation, all this kind of crazy master-level modules, uh, and yeah, like I found it so fascinating the way uh, computers uh, uh, and algorithms are inspired by uh, biological processes, um, how you can model evolution and you know opti- use it for optimization. Uh, and for me, it was just like mind blowing experience. And after m- my final year, um, I just essentially got so into this that I uh, um, started my PhD in uh, DNA nanotechnology, which was uh, part of, my project was part of synthetic biology group uh, at ICOS. Yeah, I think that's the most uh, unusual way that, that someone's got into molecular programming. <laughs> I like it. Because yeah, I was get, I was wondering how, because um, how, it says in your bio that you got into unconventional computing in undergrads and that seemed quite unusual. So I, I see you were taking master's courses. Um, so when you went into into ICOS for um for your for your PhD, and you wanted to do DNA computing, so because because they're more synthetic biology, was this new to them? What what did they say? Uh, so actually, it was a group that was uh, very computational computationally heavy, and uh, we were having a lot of projects with a school of physics, a school of uh, biosciences. Uh, on different aspects of how we can help uh, other people leverage the you know the power of computation for different type of projects so it was around designing smart molecules or smart systems uh, we were essentially like trying to build compilers for physical systems uh, and then kind of optimize them to build like emerging programmable behavior and for me, all of this was very new, but I kind of, uh, there was something in it. Uh, and um, 
when I started my project, it was also at the time where uh, DNA origami started becoming big. Uh, so my uh, immediate project was like, hey, let's look at uh, you know the programmability of DNA origami. Is there something we can do there? And we were thinking about you know all of these aspects from the, the very like computational point of view. Like, can we can we design scaffolds and staples to be you know from uh, this universal set of all stables that you can just you know pick from the library and build any shapes you want and this sort of stuff. Uh, this was quite interesting. And then uh, something happened throughout my PhD where um, I think on the second year of my PhD, me and two of my of my best friends were uh, I was doing PhD with uh, were got called by our supervisor. Uh, Everyone was like panicking and like, what have we done? What have we done? Uh, and we get to a meeting and our pro- professor is telling us, oh, actually, you know, I offer- I got offered another job at Newcastle University. Uh, so you can either, you know, come or, or stay. Uh, and essentially the entire group moved with him. And when that happened, uh, my professor was... Uh, like hardcore computer scientist turned biologist, and we joined, uh, let's say, his counterpart, where we had a biologist turned computer scientist and bioinformatician. So when those two groups merged, uh, the Nottingham group and the Newcastle group, we created uh, the new ICOS. uh, And I think at the time it was maybe one of the biggest computational synthetic biology groups, uh, certainly in UK. And... Working with uh, you know people that are biologists, uh, physicists, mathematicians, computer scientists, like everyone on the projects had a different background. Like our meetings were very multidisciplinary. Uh, so for me, just you know, talking with other people and learning from them, that was uh, I think the the, the best part uh, of my PhD. Um, Sometimes you know when you when you computer scientists and you talk to a biologist, they don't trust you very much at, at the beginning, obviously because it's like, oh guys, you're just doing some, uh, you know, you're trying to compute everything. A biology is you know more beautiful than this. You know there is there are things that you you'll never know. Uh, but then after a while, you know, when they saw the benefits of actually you know taking systems apart and trying to build them up. Uh, and building stuff from the ground up and actually modeling and then having those models, you know, work and simulate their real life. Um, There is a certain satisfaction to it as well. How were projects structured in this group? Did you have like a biologist and a computer scientist and a physicist all working together? Or did you kind of have your own project and then kind of learn from the other people how to apply their specialties to your own unique project? Mm, that that's a great question. I think we had um, each one would have uh, uh, their own projects. Um, so, for example, my project was initially based on um, this computational around um, uh, DNA origami and the scaffolds. Can we make them uh, more more programmable, more addressable, but also kind of biologically orthogonal? Um, and that was my key project for the first two years uh, of my PhD. Uh, well, for example, my colleagues were studying uh, how can we use DNA as a, a dynamic uh, DNA storage mechanism. 
uh, and you know for example their project was about uh, can we use kind of synthetic biology uh, and kind of recombinases to build a circuit that kind of uh, based on a signal for example to a bacteria cell can uh, translate that signal into a piece of dna that is then recorded into i don't know a plasmid or a genome of the bacteria so it was very uh, mine was very theoretical at first they were very uh, practical uh, but what's interesting what's happened next is that for example i veered more into the dynamic dna nanotechnology and for example using systems like strand displacement systems uh, and then we thought okay can we actually build a system that is uh, recording something dynamically some information dynamically so for this project in particular it was a merge of two other projects you know and because it was uh, it was a complex project, uh, then we had uh, a physicist joining us, uh, a chemist joining us to kind of help us um, help us build this. But um, what I really like was that uh, even th- even though you know we had a lot of postdocs and uh, you know and um, a lot of junior people as well, all the junior people also had their projects. Uh, and they were empowered to essentially uh, just get on th- with things. Uh, whenever you know you need help, you just ask for help and uh, you keep going. Um, so I think it was, uh, yeah, a very nice experience in my opinion. What was it like just up and moving halfway through your PhD? Uh, like that, that can't be very common. Oh, moving the university. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. But to to be honest, for me, it was uh, I was always on the move. Uh, from my my entire life so um i think i first moved when i was 16 i went to a high school that was kind of a a bit further from my hometown so yeah like since 16 i was kind of living on my own um and then when i was i know 19 i went to uk to to study here on for my undergrad so really for me it was uh not 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 a big deal but uh, yeah, I still remember the the first day when we were told we're moving. Uh, I kind of it was uh, a nice year because I just um, moved in with my one of my best friends uh, from Poland. Uh, so we were thinking, okay, yeah, uh, this is our future together in Nottingham. And I came back one day and just say, well, yeah, looks like I'm moving north. Uh, but yeah, it it was fine. And Newcastle is an amazing city. Uh, I always say it, it's um, because in a way it's, um, it has all the features of a big city uh, like London or, or, or Manchester, but it's so very compact that you can pretty much walk everywhere uh, in half an hour. Like, you know, people say in London, you take a tube and no matter where you go, it takes you an hour and a half. Uh, in Nottingham, uh, sorry, in, in Newcastle, it's a bit different where half an hour walk will get you everywhere. And uh, on the other side, um, on another hand, it's uh, also um, becoming a big, a big of a bio a bio hub. Uh, we, uh, for example, our labs are at Nanoveri are in the biosphere where there's lots of startups and spinouts. Uh, we have a very strong medical school um, and uh, two hospitals that are um, like top one hundred in the world. 
Can you tell us more about life at the Biosphere? Do you guys have a lot of interactions with other startups? Um, are is there lots of venture capitalists coming through, just kind of looking for what's happening? What, what's going on there? Uh, a Biosphere is a really interesting place because it was just built and we got into a pandemic quite, kind of straight away. So obviously people were, uh, after the, the initial kind of mingling and exchanging knowledge, uh, the the place kind of got shut down in a way that everyone was just sticking to their own lab. Um, but now it's opening up again, and we're trying to be the 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 company that is interacting with everyone. So um, whenever we we have a chance, we'll we'll go to events and um, and everything that Biosphere offers in terms of um, socializing and networking. Uh, we'll always have someone joining. Uh, so it's it, it's it's a quite interesting place to be. Um, there is there is some also um, kind of more established companies uh, talking about finances. I was just uh, chatting last week with a uh, um, another company that raised like I think sixty seven millions, uh, and yeah, they're working on uh, new. Um, ways of delivering drugs to 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 sales um so it it's it, it's a really uh, really vibrant place uh, to be here so for you um did you know when you were early did you know earlier that you would like to start a company or uh is there any time in during your phd that make you feel that you that's what you want to do in the future mm-hmm. um i guess i always Kind of knew that this 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 would be a future I would like to have in terms of building your own company. I had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, actually, yeah, I think I I started like my first company that lasted maybe a week when I was like a teenager or even younger. I was essentially um, uh, picking up cherries and then selling them. And company number two was I think. Um, uh, private investigate investigative office, uh, which I uh, essentially and my father still <laughs> kind of uh, uh, it's mad at me because I started putting leaflets with our home telephone uh, all over the city, saying you know call the detectives if you need help. So I was always doing something crazy like this. But in terms of uh, when it got real was, I think after I finished my PhD and started looking around of what I can do. Um, I, I I didn't really want to go to stay in academia to you know to become a professor. It's like I know one percent chance that you, that you're gonna become one in the end. Uh, and I was thinking, okay, how about uh, you know looking at you know how we could uh, start a company or have a, a, essentially an industrial experience out of the academia. So I think it was one uh, meeting of Innovate UK. They were presenting what are the different opportunities for for postgrads uh, doing a business and uh, i think it was the iCure program that we got into and iCure is a program where you are paid for three months to leave the lab and see if the te- uh, technology that you're working with can help someone in a way uh, obviously you come up with a proposition first so um, at the time we were working on this concept of uh, DNA barcodes. Uh, 
the idea was uh, quite simple. It was about solving a problem of traceability in the uh, GMO world, uh, where the idea was, can we make programming bacteria uh, as systematic as programming you know, computers, uh, whereby uh, you can share the code and you can have a repository of a code uh, somewhere. Uh, so the idea was, okay, how about we design a website where uh, people can upload their documents about the, you know, the design of a GMO, whatever, you know, modifications they do to an organism. And then the website will generate a, a barcode for you, a, a, essentially a barcode that is then translated into a sequence of DNA that you can, uh, you know, um, read in and out uh, and switch between the two very easily. And then that barcode would then be actually inserted, physically inserted into the genome of a bacteria in a known place where it can be easily read, uh, shared. And then, you know, if somebody takes the, the same bacteria, uh, you can retrieve all the information and kind of continue this chain of, uh, of information and the new versions of the, of the strain. And uh, so what this iCure program allowed us to do is essentially for three months, go around the world and literally around the world, because I think at one point I landed in New Zealand uh, from UK, uh, talking to uh, people that I, I never knew I would talk to. So for example, there were people that uh, linked me with uh, New Zealand uh, Navy, Navy uh, Royal Navy or something like this. And they were interested in, you know, if a technology like this can help them with something around the, the ships and conservation of ships. And I was like, well, we had a, interesting conversations, definitely. And um, and this is the whole point of iCure. Essentially, you are stepping out of the lab and you're trying to learn as much of people's problems as possible. So obviously, I was also talking with a lot of pharma companies. Turn out that pharma companies are doing something like this already, but all internally. So... Uh, we're just kind of trying to find out if, if this can fly as an idea for a business. Um, and yeah, I mean, in, in the end, that gave me that confidence about how do you approach starting a, a, a startup. And the, the way to start it is uh, first identify the problem you're solving. Really go down to what is it that, that you're trying to do and then try to talk to as many people as possible about it uh, and see if, 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 if you might have a solution and if they want to try it. So definitely a, a very good learning experience uh, for me. Uh, I would say that the startup is still in deep stealth mode, meaning that it never launched. <laughs> so uh, yeah, th this has to be said. Um, and yeah, essentially at that time, uh, I was saying uh, it, it's a really nice idea. We had some uh, opportunities from Innovate UK. Also, they wanted to put some more money into the project. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the university was kind of very slow to uh, to move forward. So I also learned about parts about, you know, what is the difference between spin out from university and startup? Um, and yeah, if, if you want to do something, uh, I would recommend doing a startup in your own. Do you think there's a chance that Nanovri could, in the future, when when you're bigger, mm -hmm. like go back to the barcoding thing and add that, or is that just a lesson learned now? 
Uh, it's interesting. So the, the project is not uh, dead yet in terms that um, there's been a number of publications that they uh, that they launched uh, or they, they released. Um, so the system works. You, you have a website and you can do all of these things, but it's much more in this academic environment rather than uh, actually a commercial startup with um with uh, you know projected you know revenues and growth but yeah uh, this, uh, so the the idea is still there the idea is still there i think the idea of barcoding a genome is like giving it a name and tracking where mm-hmm. it goes but my question then is um how do you track if there are mutations in the barcode itself because i believe over time since it is not coding for something essential, it's going to change and down the lane, the barcode is no longer the one you put in. How do you keep track of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, glad you asked because that was exactly what I was uh, I, I was doing when I, I was designing the system. So the idea was how can we make sure that the barcode is stable and even though there might be a mutation, can we spot the mutation and, and fix it? Um. And the way we do it is uh, just assuming that the process of having a barcode in the cell and carrying it by the cell, it's almost like trying to send a message through a noisy channel. Um, and obviously your message can be distorted, right? So let's say if I if I tell you, uh, you know, uh, oh yeah, I uh, I would I w- I'd like to get a beer with you. Uh, but then, you know, we're in the noisy restaurant or a noisy club and, you know, my message gets distorted into, uh, I'd like to get a beef with you rather than a beer. You know, there's just one little one letter difference, but it can still, you know, change the whole meaning of the, uh, of the park, uh, of, of, yeah, of, of, of what you're trying to send. Uh, and the way we did it is that the barcode had special, uh, checksums that were checking the validity of um, the first half of the barcode, the second half of the barcode, and then um, the barcode in its entirety, including the the first two checksums. So at every single point, you were able to find out uh, if there is an error or not, if the, if the barcode is valid itself. Uh, so if you detect that the barcode is invalid, uh, you have that. Now, how can you recover it? Uh, one thing is that, obviously, in... Um, in free speech, you know, or sending codes, you can come up with any type of uh, any type of message. So th- this is kind of difficult. But if you know the registry of all the barcodes, uh, you know, you already know what kind of messages were available uh, or what kind of messages were registered. So uh, you can even do something as simple as uh, sequence alignment to find out which barcode your barcode is the most likely uh, to be um and then with the right checksums you essentially uh, can get additional confidence yeah this is the this is the the right one so yeah there were there were some smart tricks we uh, we put in the in the barcode so it wasn't just a kind of plain uh, plain code is there a limit on how long these barcodes can exist before you lose any ability to kind of correct any errors that's another great question, and, uh, and a funny story is that my uh, my friend that was developing those barcodes with me, he was on the um, biological side of things. He actually had to find out how stable those barcodes are, 
And to do that, he designed a whole system where you had a continuous growing of bacteria previously barcoded and trying to see what is the mutational burden on the, you know, on the, on the barcode. So the way he set up the experiment was that, you know, he was taking a measurement every half an hour, but for three days. So he was literally sleeping under the, the bench in the lab, uh, waking up every 20 minutes. So is it a form of that... torture? Yeah, I think it's it's a form of torture. Yeah, it's a form of a PhD torture that you sign up for uh, when when you want to uh, yeah answer a question like how stable is the barcode. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was fun times. I think uh, I, he was complaining, but uh, but I, I think deep down he was enjoying this kind of the setup he uh, he made. And so in the end, did it last for you? Said three days. It was. Mm-hmm. Did the barcode survive the whole time? Yeah, it's like t- thousands of generations and nothing's happened. But, you know, the thing is that uh, normally Nikolai, uh, the, uh, um, even the er- uh, the kind of the uh, errors while you're replicating the chromosomes are are so low that it's very unlikely that every every generation something, a mutation will hit a barcode. Uh, plus, the other thing that we did was uh, we put the barcode, I think, very close to the uh, origin of, of replication, which is a very conserved part uh, of, of the genome. So that gave it this additional uh, stability. What about what about keeping track of the changes? Mm-hmm. So instead of saying, I'm going to try to prevent changes, assume that changes are inevitable and just keep track of them. So a barcode is forever evolving. Would that be a, a feasible way of doing it? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So the way we designed the system was that, um, let's say you take a, a, a bacterial strain from HANA and you want to do some modifications to it. Uh, if you're happy with the modifications and you want to barcode it as a new thing, what you would do is um, essentially um, cut out the old barcode and insert in the new place um, the new barcode that is generated by the website as you essentially add your edits on the website. And uh, we did it in a way that uh, it was very easy to essentially uh, pop out the the last barcode and insert a new one in. I want to move on to what I think everyone will agree is your most important startup, the uh, private investigation service. So um, (laughs) uh, did you get any interesting clients after um, leaving flyers all over town? Uh, Yes, actually, I had one client that turned out to be my cousin's grandpa, uh, she called us saying that her cat is missing. And I, I took it very seriously. So I put down all the uh, kind of notes in my notebook, how how the cat looks like. Uh, I'm pretty sure I still have those. I think very soon it turned out, yeah, that it was a, a kind of a, a fa- family member, uh, you know, trying to help me grow the business a lot. Yeah, I think that was the only uh, telephone uh, that we got. So Nanovri. Um, so I guess like after this barcoding spin out, um, I, I mean, you already had a taste for business, mm-hmm. but what pushed you towards going fully into, I'm going to create a company, I'm going to raise funds and yeah, t- tell us about mm-hmm. Nanovri. Uh, so it all started as a very big experiment as well. Like I guess more things. Um, 
so I was still really interested in in startups. Um, and a friend of mine that I was doing a PhD with, uh, he went down to London and he actually was looking at startups and he joined one, um, more in the uh, music business, uh, which is also quite interesting because on his PhD he was doing high performance uh, computation and um, essentially simulating lots of different biological algorithms uh, and stochastic algorithms uh, and what kind of biological models you can can do with that but essentially when he was looking around he noticed that a lot of startups in london are originating from this place called entrepreneur first and when i've heard about entrepreneur first for the first time i didn't know what it is um and it turned out to be uh, like seriously the biggest experiment uh, in, in my life at least um what uh, ef does is that they talk to uh, lots of smart people and they pick like a uh, hundred uh, every half a year, every six months to join a cohort. Uh, so you have all of those people that want to start a business, but not necessarily know what this business is going to do, or they don't have a co-founder to do, to, to start a business with. And, uh, and this, experiment is quite interesting because what happens is all of these people are put in one place and asked to ideate uh, and the ideation essentially becomes okay i'm an expert in x can i talk to an expert in y see where is the cross-section of potential ideas we can work on and if we find something cool we try to, you know, launch something in literally eight weeks, and so you have uh, eight weeks uh, to to come up with an idea, to come up with, a, uh, you know, uh, a co-founder and an idea for a startup. Uh, and it's a very fast-paced process. Uh, it's where... kind of like a business blind date sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We we literally had like you know some events where where, where like speed dating. When you know everyone that has doesn't have a team, please go to speed dating and you know and get into a team by the end of the day. That was the challenge. Uh, so uh, there's an interesting mechanic to it where if you're a solo founder and you haven't found anyone, uh, it's better to get into a team as soon as possible. If you're in a team and you're making progress daily. On your, on your startup idea, stay stay in it uh, for as long as you're making progress. As soon as you stop making progress or you feel this is not really working on a personal level or any other way, um, or, or the idea for a startup is not really good or you pivot into something where you need somebody else like with different expertise, so you already know that this won't work, you are encouraged to break up from that, from that uh, pairing as soon as possible. And then it comes again, the loop comes again. So, um, and I think I had like five different co-founders throughout the process. Um, and the idea for Nanovery uh, started like literally on the last possible week. Um, so coming into EF, I knew about nanorobots that are uh, designed for intelligent drug delivery systems where you essentially design a DNA origami cage that is filled with drugs and 
delivers those drugs to a specific cells. Um, and I, I thought, okay, this, this is kind of my edge. This is what uh, I, I can build a startup around. Uh, but nobody wanted to, to build a startup around this. Uh, nobody else felt confident, okay, like, what am I going to do in, in, in this startup? So I was very early on in the process, I was thinking, okay, maybe, you know, I also have AI skills and computing skills. I can work on somebody else's idea. I don't really care. I just want to do something. Um, and I was trying this for seven consecutive weeks. Uh, and then at week eight, I was like, well, okay, this hasn't worked. So maybe I will find someone to uh, to, wor- to work on my idea. And also EF is an amazing place that you you find so many people from so many different backgrounds. So I was talking to people that are uh, in a- area of cancer and I've learned about this huge problem in uh, cancer diagnostic where you can detect cancer much earlier from blood samples. Uh, but the problem is that every technology that's available right now to do it is slow and expensive. So you don't really have uh, the benefit of, you know, widespread benefits of, 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 of this breakthrough technologies. Um, and we thought, hey, how about we design nanorobots from DNA that can find, you know, uh, DNA or RNA biomarkers in blood samples? Um, and, you know, it started all as just an idea. Um, and obviously, yeah, we were kind of late, very late in the process. So we were thinking, okay, how can we show that, you know, it can potentially work? What, you know, what kind of traction can we can we get in such a short, short amount of time? And something amazing happened because um, I went back to Newcastle for a visit and was connected with one of the clinicians uh, that are working here. And I told him, like, look, we have this idea for a startup. It's, you know, nanorobots, blood samples, liquid biopsy. You know, it's a, a, everyone was at the time really excited about, the, uh, you know, this, uh, this new area. And the clinician told me, like, look, if, if you have something you want to try, we can give you blood samples from our patients. So I came back to EF saying, hey, look, I think I secured blood samples after, you know, two weeks of having this startup on a, literally, a, you know, a napkin sketch. And they were like, oh, okay, this, this is good. Like, keep going, guys. And yeah, we got the initial investment from them. And yeah, we, we just went for it. Uh, the rest is history, as they say. But obviously, uh, we're, uh, we've been going for three years now. Uh, and yeah, it's so far, it's been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, running a company and also running a company that is uh, in healthcare space. And also a company that is, you know, uses DNA nanotechnology as the, you know, basis of everything. So it's definitely been the, you know, the hardest thing I've done. Uh, but I enjoy it, and it's really rewarding to. So sometimes I'm just come to the office and I, I look around and I'm like, it, it's it's a running thing, you know. It's 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 a it's 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 a thing that you know, literally going back to those early days when first we had just an idea. And then we were, you know, for a year stuck in um, labs that were in the shipping containers, a very kind of uh, a breaking bad style of way. Uh, and now we have a proper lab with like really top world top scientists wor- working on this problem. 
it it just yeah it's 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 humbling as well as an experience so all i'm gonna say <laughs> so um kind of looking at what nandavari does there's kind of two parts to it right there's the molecular diagnostics where you like optimize the biology and then there's the uh ai side where you're trying to design the diagnostic probes how do the two sides work together um like what's what's the team look like for these two separate but related enterprises mm -hmm. exactly so when we started we actually just had the um the molecular side we didn't have any ai to to, to start with and I, I also didn't want to start with ai so what we wanted to do is build a proof of concept that is you know uh, the AI part is actually, you know, it's not artificial intelligence, it's just intelligence. So people designing, you know, the, the, those systems. Um, and But very soon, uh, you know, um, when you take an idea to the lab and you see that um, it doesn't work, you know, um, you start, uh, you know, troubleshooting it. So very, very soon we needed to have a system that essentially is able to first predict how the, the, the given system will behave in the laboratory, uh, but also then suggest uh, changes that you can make. And, what, and having this kind of rapid feedback loop where we, we can modify the designs and then see how they would perform before we even you know, order our first uh, piece of, of DNA, uh, which is also in terms of uh, you know, just running the cycles of design, uh, waiting two weeks for every time you have a new idea is is it, it's not good for business. Um, so, really, uh, having uh, we now have a, a well, a, originally a bioinformatician that joined our team, and now he's moving more towards uh, you know computational simulations. Um, and actually, next month, uh, two more people are joining us to help us with the computational pipeline but as you say those are those are kind of two separate projects but in the way that we structure our design this is an integral part part of what we do um, so starting with a biomarker of interest um, you can already have a candidate for a, for a biomarker uh, or you can use the computational uh, essentially bioinformatics tool to come up with an uh, with some biomarkers, depending on what kind of data you're, you you have. Uh, when you have the biomarker, then what happens is you need to simulate uh, or design your system based on the concentration of biomarkers, um, and then how to best uh, detect it. Uh, and then off you go to the to the lab part when you uh, when you're doing those experimental optimizations. And this is a closed loop system, so uh, every experiment is informing us on how to design those systems better next time around. How many of those closed loops do you think you've, you've gone through? How many different diagnostics are you mm -hmm. looking at? So we moved into the lab April uh, 2021. So it will be nearly a year now that, we, that we've been running. Um, and I would say that around 10 loops have been closed like this. Um, and obviously it, for the kind of first half a year, the loops were single idea let's run with it uh, now it's more you have kind of 20 mini loops before you actually start something because you can go through 20 different designs because you before you settle on one that you actually you're, you're confident is promising enough 
you want to bring it forward into the lab. Uh, but yet, kind of shortening this design cycle is something that we also work on uh, right now. And so then once it gets into the lab, like, what what are your next steps? Like, um, where what kind of timeline would there be before you start to get to things such as clinical trials? Is that kind of a 10-year timescale or, or what are you looking at? Oh, no, we want to get to clinical trials as soon as possible. Um, so... The way we worked with is um, first we were doing our tests uh, purely in like, you know, our optimum buffer for those sorts of technologies. Um, so we tested different buffers. We kind of knew how each of them is behaving depending on, on the system. Uh, and then what we would do is spike those buffer with known amount of biomarker. Uh, so we can d- then start measuring things like, okay, how what is your lower limit of detection for the technology? Um, you can do interesting experiments about selectivity and, uh, and sensitivity of your system by introducing, you know, mutations and so on. Um, and then we moved into a kind of more clinically relevant media, which is blood serum. So we would order uh, from a commercial source uh, a serum, and we would do exactly the same type of experiments with spiking them with a known amount of biomarkers. Um so the next step for us, the obvious step was, okay, now, you know, we, 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 we can work with serum. How about we get hold on to some uh, patient serum so we can do like a small cohort study. Um, and we've been uh, engaging with clinicians and um, essentially there is kind of one extra experiment that they recommended us to do, which is essentially... Uh, you take the uh, extract from different tissue of animal um, and you uh, it's kind of sort of like a blind test where we try to predict which sample is coming from which tissue because the biomarker that we look for is very tissue specific. So the idea is, okay, can we can our nanorobots detect this uh, where the sample is full of all the other type of uh, genetic material uh, like DNA or RNA? So this is ongoing right now. And after we complete this stage, we can move directly to uh, to patient samples. How do you decide on the biomarkers? Is this coming from the clinicians, or do you guys have? Are you guys doing a lot of background research to try to decide what to target next? Yeah, it at the moment is both, um, and this is also a, a challenge. Uh, the, the thing is that uh, you know when I was starting the business, I thought, okay, I've, we'll have to do everything. But obviously, if you have a team of nine, you know you can't you can't do everything. You need to be smart about how you how you uh, decide on the projects you take on. And ideal project for us is where there is somebody that already knows what kind of biomarker they're looking for, because they either uh, you know do biomarker validation as part of their job, uh, or we essentially look for the most promising biomarkers in the literature. Um, so those are the kind of two two approaches that we have and obviously uh, our expertise mostly lies in the design and development of those nanorobots we're not a company that is you know doing biomarker validation um but early on yeah in a startup that does that's a kind of this i think about startups is that um at the beginning you, you do have to do everything yourself but as soon as possible try to find a way where you can you know, either leverage your network or your, uh, you know, the, the the people you work with 
to do things smarter. So you said that you have faced a lot of challenges. Are those challenges mostly about the technical side or how to form the company, find the right people, or can you talk more about that? Well, I would say that the challenges are um, are many uh, and often. And, you know, the, the thing is that um, for me, especially it's when I, I wake up, I go to, to the labs, uh, I don't know what kind of challenge I will like. So th- there are some challenges that, you know, you need to solve. Uh, but the most kind of surprising and the ones that are giving you the most uh, kind of confidence are the challenges that are coming unexpected. And then you need to like think on your feet and try to yeah put down fires, uh, uh, you know, as, as effectively as possible. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of um, the technology, yeah, we we uh, we progressed a lot since a year. So I I think uh, in twelve months we I'm 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 surprised where we are because we're a bit further than I I thought we'll be. Um, there are some obviously as you do R and D, you find out actually you know you were scratching the surface and there are more challenges than you thought so than you thought there would be uh but so far so good with you know with dealing with 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 uh, all of those um one challenge for me was uh, although i kind of had this experience with startups before was i underestimated how uh, tough the you know business development part of the of the startup is uh, you know, you can have the most amazing technology in the world, but, you know, if nobody wants to, you know, use it or buy it or, you know, or interact with it, um, it is a problem. And uh, and literally that should be the focus of the uh, of, of any type of business, finding, a, you know, a sustainable business model, uh, something that will work as a business. Um, uh, obviously, there are, you know, things like, you know, accounting, legal, uh, IP, all of this stuff, which uh, was scary before I joined EF, but kind of this entrepreneur, uh, uh, yeah, entrepreneur first kind of got me into a mindset that, uh, yeah, if you want to do something, you just need to, you know, you can learn it on the fly. Uh, and you can always, you know, talk to people that have done it before and, uh, and ask for their mentorship um, and advice. So in terms of, um, you know, self-development and how this part goes, I think, yeah, s- launching your own business is, is yeah, the, the quickest way uh, to, to develop yourself as well. So when you're, one of the challenges was uh, building the client base, did you have any pushback when you mentioned that you were using nanorobots, DNA nanorobots to do your diagnostics? Were people skeptical? Mm. Uh, I I wouldn't uh, say people were spe- skeptical because of this. So, for example, the the story I was telling you a bit before, when we got the um, the blood samples uh, or, or or access to a to, you know to a clinical trial straight away, it was in that case actually the nano robots were the, the the selling point, right? It was like, wow, okay, this sounds this one this sounds like a cool technology. And uh, yeah, happy to happy to do something with you. Uh, and to be honest, where um, any customer base around the world will have this k- 
kind of normal distribution of early adopters versus late adopters versus the where majority of people sit. And the thing is that uh, it's quite easy to spot who is the early adopter once you start talking to them. Because one thing is that whatever, you know, the, whatever is new, they love it. And after kind of half an hour of a conversation, they will start telling you, how about this idea? How about this? Can you have, have you thought about this? Why don't we make it so that, you know, it uses a purpose sleep and an iPhone, you know, and they kind of, they are giving you ideas uh, on their own, how to, how to do it. And early adopters is who you want to work with. Uh, those are the people that are excited about new things and they are very sensitive to positive results and not sensitive at all to negative results. If something goes wrong, they are like, yeah, well, it happens, you know, it's new stuff. Uh, but if, if something good happens, they will be the champions of, uh, of you know, of, of, of your technology and of your idea. Uh, and then they will, you know, this, this is how it starts, right? Obviously, when you, uh, you know, we have conversations with people that are clearly on the other side of the spectrum where they're like, you know, what is that? This is, uh, you know, uh, this is not for me. Uh, tell me when this is already, you know, uh, approved by, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, you know, and every, every one of my colleagues is already using this. Then I will adopt it, you know. You've, you've mentioned like talking to adopters versus talking to venture capitalists versus talking to scientists. How do you like change your message as you're talking to each of the different groups of people that are involved in this? Oh, man, such a good question. I, I'm still learning this. I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm just about to start fundraising for another, for another round soon. And oh yeah, I have those reflections from like kind of last year when we were doing this and it's a completely different language you need to adopt. And uh, in general, I found running a business is half of the job is literally how you communicate with people, uh, which I, I still need to get better at. But the, the thing is that the way you talk to customers, obviously they will care about completely different things than investors will care. Um, and we were taught that at EF as well, like uh, your customer presentation don't show it to your investor and your investor presentation don't show it to the customer because you know it, it it's just like you're not going to achieve anything with this um so in terms of uh customers uh the, the first is try to understand if, if you understand their pain and their point of view uh if you know the the kind of um so-called uh, hair on fire problems so problems that are so uh, urgent and important that you know you just put any anything on your you know just to put you down your you know the uh, flaming hair uh, the, if you understand the problem uh, intimately and deeply uh, you, you're gonna have good conversations with customers um, for investors it's yeah they're a weird, weird, weird bunch but you know there are people in the end as well uh, the, the, the thing with the investors you you need to understand is that their primary job description is take uh, amount of money X and, you know, make more out of it. So obviously what they do is they uh, look for startups that will offer that return on investment. Um, and, you know, also depend on the investors because some will have different, you know, invest, 
um, kind of thesis of investment. So they might invest in you because, you know, you're a really good team. And they say, it doesn't matter what kind of problem they work on. It's such a smart and, you know, and experienced team that uh, whatever happens, they will, you know, pivot to a, a good problem solution. Um, some other investors will invest, you know, only in diagnostic companies. Some other investors will only invest in, uh, you know, thera- therapeutic uh, agents or, you know, so it, it, it does need to fit with with what they uh, what they know and what they can invest in. And also for you as a, because the, the, the thing that not many people realize is that it, it has to be a double uh, sided uh, thing. Uh, you don't want to get an investor that just gives you money and lets you run with it. Uh, this is what's called a dump money and you want smart money. You want someone that not only brings the investment, but also, um, helps you with for example uh, customer contacts or contracts or or ip or legal or you know any type of uh, support to grow your business better a follow-up to x question um between investors and customers do do one category of people get more biology based lingo and the other gets more computation based lingo or do they both get get the same kind of uh, mix lingo or like because they're both different fields and obviously I feel like you will be leaning towards one side depending what you're talking about so how do you gauge that which person wants to hear what side um, so again uh, I would uh, say that the most important thing is that uh, you as a uh, founder of a business uh, know what is the problem that you're solving and always speak to the problem and then the value of the of the solution. So uh, when we go out and we say, uh, no, hey, I have this interesting technology, it's DNA nanotechnology, plus it's AI powered, plus it's on the blockchain, plus it's you know satellite powered, plus this and that. Uh, very often you will find out that you know uh, you, you you're not getting anywhere. Because, you know, you're just like listing your technology stack or, you know, what's interesting about your technology. And the, the harsh truth of all of this is that nobody cares. Nobody cares how cool the stuff that you're building is uh, because they don't see how, how relevant it is to them. But if you go out to them and say, uh, hey, I, you know, I notice you're in this area and, you know, I have some uh, ideas about, you know, solving some problems around this area. So can you tell me if I'm on the right way? and you will find out that people love talking about their problems. People like you know this is this is a fantastic thing about early early stage startups, is that people know that you probably have nothing to sell yet, uh, and if you if you approach it from the problem perspective, people would uh, would talk to you and they will tell you, oh, you know, this is a problem. Also, this is a problem, and uh, so so. Uh, I think there is an art in 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 the way you uh, you you get a little bit more information every time every time you talk to them and try to essentially map out what is the problem and then your job as an entrepreneur is okay can I come up with a solution that will solve that exact problem uh, and it might not solve the entire problem uh, at first it can solve like a small part of the problem. Uh, but if you're leading with value and you're giving you know your customers something, uh, that they will want to talk to you more. 
uh, and then they will get interested in like okay so you know you you gave me this you know it, it does solve my problem how does it actually work how how are you able to do it and then you can you know well you know then you can say hey you know it's dna nanotechnology it uses ai it's those lasers you know this smokes and mirrors uh, well hopefully not smokes and mirrors but um yeah it, it then it becomes a completely different conversation so on the topic of that technology stack so i guess it's fair to say that most startups are kind of i, I guess it's fair to say that there's not really something that's typical for a given startup but do you think there are any unique challenges that come with doing a molecular programming slash DNA nanotechnology based startup compared to other startups? Uh, absolutely. So I think the um, the main challenge is, well, th- there are a few. F- for example, uh, if, if you talk to people, there's a lot um, about explaining what it actually is uh, with with investors, especially. Um, so I, the question, what is a nanorobot? I, I, I can't remember how many times we had that and, you know, you need to tell them it's, it's like this, but like this, and, you know, everyone already has a concept, you know, either, you know, it's a small metallic thing that, you know, that runs around and, you know, battery powered and so like this, and you tell them like, no, it's not like this. It's, 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 it's more like this, but there is no point of reference really. If, If you haven't, you know, have been through, you know, some sort of molecular programming uh, you know school or if you haven't not touched any projects like this um so the kind of uh, explaining what it actually is um is a challenge uh also people think that it costs a lot of money uh to build which uh actually you know with the recent progress in technology it's, it's not that expensive uh Another problem that I see in general for all the healthcare and biotech startups is that uh, you do need to get investors that understand the timescales because obviously, you know, uh, if you're building a dating app, you can, you know, come up with a prototype, uh, you know, in in, in a few days Uh, and, you know, you can keep adding features very, uh, very often. Where biotech startups is... Uh, and healthcare startups, it's a bit longer uh, because obviously you need to uh, spend extra time to show that what you're building is actually working as it's supposed to be. Uh, you need to go through the regulatory approvals, clinical trials, so on. So it does take time, and the sales cycles are also longer. Uh, you know, for uh, for a, cost, a customer app, uh, you know, you can get a client in you know visit this website, click a button and you're signed in. Um, for a company in this uh, in area that we're in, uh, you know, it can easily take half a year or a year from the beginning of a, you know, conversation to where you have a, a deal signed. Because uh, very often it's not only one person that decides. And th- this is true, you know, for uh, ev- every startup in biotechnology. So yeah, th- those are the three challenges. That, that, that I would say are, are the most important. I'm not sure how much you're like allowed to say, but what are your DNA nanobots? I know there's DNA and there's fluorescence. Are you allowed to say whether this is a strand displacement or translation based? What, what exactly are you guys doing for our scientist audience? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I, this this much I think I can share. Um, so yeah, a lot of uh, the thing uh, that we do is based on uh, strand displacement and uh, essentially trying to use reactions like this uh, to, as essentially um, trying to use a biomarker as a information that you put through the system. Um, and uh, the way we designed is a free module design that is consisting of uh, like any other, if you look at the design of any architecture of the biosensors, you always have the part that is detecting, the part that is amplifying and the part that is responding. Uh, and this is exactly how we design our system as well. So there will be a part that is uh, responsible for picking up the biomarker. And depending also on what type of biomarker, you can have uh, detectors that are sensitive to like single nucleotide um, mutations, which is, for example, very important in areas like cancer. Um, then you have um, the amplification, which is the, you know, it's very different to the PCR amplification, where you um, act, try to activate as many uh, cascade of uh, of DNA reactions as uh, as, uh, as possible uh, to bring the signal to a detectable level. Um, yeah, and at the end you have the yeah, the fluorescent uh, base readout. Um, one thing I'm gonna say is that uh, you know we have this uh, design and. Uh, a lot of systems like this are studied in academia, but if you look at the papers in academia, they're still, uh, you know, working with very high concentrations of, of of the components, and also what they do is they measure everything with you know, a, a kind of single cuvettes, which is uh, to kind of get produce a graph for a paper. It will take you a week or more of testing and shooting, you know, different samples. Uh, over and over again. Uh, so a lot of the early development that we did was actually how do we make that move into you know closer to the where where our customer base is. We know, for example, that uh, you know something like a plate reader is available in most of the hospital labs. So can we port this technology into you know plate readers and make it work there? So a lot of optimization around. You know, how do we actually handle the liquid? What kind of uh, consumables we use? Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, testing went into this as well. Um, and then, yeah, we're on the way to uh, essentially make make this technology even more sensitive and more more robust. So you're mentioning that currently your team has nine members. Like, what are their compositions? How did you find them? Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh well, all the all the kudos are co- going to my co-founder Roma that uh, that found the people that work with us. Um, we were actually very lucky because when we uh, were raising the investment, we uh, we put out the advert, and uh, the response has been amazing. We found people that uh, were, for example, two of them, two of our lead scientists, were in Singapore on the A Star program, which is a very uh, very good science program uh, funded by the government and from all the places after Singapore they ended up in Newcastle on our doorstep uh, so interviewed them and yeah it immediately clicked with like we made a decision like on a day that yeah, we were hiring them and the third person uh, joined us from from London uh, it was also 
yeah, it was such a, a crazy time because the, the, they they moved even before we closed the round. So we there was no money in the company left, and you know people have been moving to Newcastle to start working with us. And I was like, okay, like we, we better like close the deal, and you know, and um, so otherwise it yeah it might go a bit mental. Um, yeah, and and since then the the the, the company has been growing. So we also have good ties with Newcastle University. So so uh, some good people uh, that we work with in collaborative projects. After at the end of the project, they just decide, okay, I I really want to join Nanovary and and work with them. Uh, so yeah, so so far so good. But uh, yeah, we're we're always on the lookout for smart people uh, that are into this type of uh, work, and we have a good uh, working culture. Uh, pretty much everyone that visits us is like, oh, what a nice nice place to work. Uh, so I think we're creating something special. Um, so yeah, if any of the listeners would like to get in touch in terms of uh, careers, yeah. Don't hesitate. Just let us know. So with that, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Yurek. Stay tuned to our newsletter for details on our next podcast episodes. And thanks for listening.